My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Rather than getting swept up in the fear of the market or the greed of the market is really kind of stepping back and saying, you know, in, in light of what's actually happening, how could I adapt my strategy or my game plan? This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Taran Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with Amazon best-selling author, chartered accountant and founder of the Freedom Warrior program, Selena Kilkarni. In this episode, we dive into what happens when fear permeates the market, what has caused it in the past and how what you can seem like the end of the world can actually be an opportunity in disguise. property market has always ebbed and flowed and seen ups and downs and as of June 2022, it appears to be heading towards a downward trend. This impending downward slope and the general volatility of the market is creating uncertainty among investors which in turn is causing a lot of fear and anxiety. You and I like to say when we're certainly not economists but we're both keen observers of what's happening in the market. It's really fascinating to me to observe just how rapidly the market is cooling and how much fear has already kind of imbued itself in the market in really just a very short space of time. You know, things like the inflation and, and you know, other interest rate hikes and things like that, the, the news of those kind of, you know, bits of information has been around for a few months now and yet all of a sudden we're seeing, you know, the impacts of the kind of sentiment in the market starting to really um, hit home and, and, you know, people are doing all sorts of crazy things right now and there's definitely a lot of fear sitting in the market. Do you think that's driven by, like, what kind of factors do you think you drives it? Because the thing is, let's say we take a, take a time, a travel back to, say, COVID time back in 2020, which is two years ago. At that point in time, we were you know, we were very concerned not knowing what was going to happen and then literally after a few months of people understanding how COVID was the impact and then what was going on, the market started to change and there was a lot more positive sentiment and in a very short space of time, there's a lot of FOMO and the market just continually went nuts in all honesty. Like some of the things that as you, as you, you know, shared with me, some of the prices have gone bonkers. And it just goes to show that it seems to be an emotional thing because no one knew, no one could plan it. But then somehow the information got out that, okay, 
this this market is is rising, so people should jump on the bandwagon. Do you think that this is all driven by maybe perhaps media, maybe it's people's fear and emotion? Like, where do you think this is kind of initially driven from? It's a really interesting thing that um, you know you know my views on crystal ball gazing. I I have a very high level of skepticism around all the people out there predicting with high certainty what will happen. Um, I I just don't believe in talking in certainties, but I I think it's worthwhile if you are serious about your investing, focusing on probabilities and possible outcomes. Um, And in terms of what happened over the last couple of years, the big unknown that kind of sits in the space of economics is we just don't know what levers the government is going to pull. We don't know what rabbits they're going to pull out of the hat. And frankly, if the stimulus package hadn't been at the level that it was at for the last couple of years, it it would have been, you know, something on par with the Great Depression. I mean, you know, everyone's aware that that could have happened. So, you know, I think if you think back to sort of March 2020, it was panic for a very short period of time followed by this, you know, period of time where, you know, clearly the government was putting their hand in their pocket to try and, you know, stabilise. And then within about six months, it went from kind of fear and panic to, um, you know, almost like jubilation of, you know, you know, everyone should jump on with all this extra money that they've got. So, you know, I, I think your biggest job as an investor is pricing risk. Um, you know, you've got to pay attention to what's happening in the market. Um, and I think people pay too much attention to extreme events and, and then you, you get, you know, this herd mentality of, you know, just mass market panic or, or mass market greed, whichever way it goes. It's interesting because that's the thing. This is history repeating itself. And I remember when I was going through the times of, say, for example, the, the internet boom and then the bubble and that, that causing it in the GFC and so forth, there was always going to be some kind of slowdown or, or downtrend because when the GFC, for example, hit, a lot of people got caught out and unfortunately, you know, had to sell or was in really, really desperate financial situations and they didn't really have much buffer. When I looked at that opportunity, and this is the, something that I was looking back at as a kid because GFC happened when I was still a kid and um, I didn't really have much, I guess, money or anything really to spend to, to get involved into the market. But I realized, you know, if this kind of event happened again, or similar events like that happen again, I look at it being from an opportunity perspective because ultimately you want to be prepared for these kind of things that happen. And I guess at this point in time, you know, when we're looking at what's happening in the market, I think it's just once again, you know, herd mentality because if you look at the fundamentals of, of some of the properties and what you what people have, a lot of it should, you know, be able to ride out waves like this. This is just another dip in the market and then, you know, depending on how long the, the actual cycle lasts for, it will just be another time and I guess this is where we've got to understand from a psychology perspective or a, a managing emotion perspective how we can actually ride this out because if it is you know, going to be turbulent times ahead, how do we actually look at managing those emotions and, and ensuring that we can actually get out here without you know, being in carnage <laughs> per se. What are your thoughts on that? The observation I would make is that I think events are just events. I think it's what the market makes it mean that's what driving that drives the market. So, you know, I, I think we talked about this the last time we caught up, you know, inflation is at a 40-year high. There's a huge war brewing. Um, the threat of interest rate rises that 
are going to continue is going to make cost of capital for business very expensive and potentially could really threaten you know the the foundations of many businesses that rely on any kind of borrowing um I think commodity and share markets are already showing those signs of volatility. Um, consumers and investors are definitely nervous. But I think that um, history has shown that during these periods of transition, most people are looking backwards with optimism that, you know, that the government will rescue the economy. And, you know, my response to that is maybe they will, but maybe they can't. Who knows? Um so I think the big takeaway for investors, and we've, we've sort of talked about this a little already, is that, you know, this is a point in time where it's really vital to be consolidating our wealth and positioning for more caution rather than trying, you know, rather than getting swept up in the fear of the market or the greed of the market is really kind of stepping back and saying, you know, in, in light of what's actually happening, how could I adapt my strategy or my game plan and instead of you know what one of the things i hear from a lot of investors is they they have a an idea in their head of the strategy or the asset class that's going to get them to where they want to go and they hold on to it like it's it is the way it's the only way and what i've witnessed from having spent time with people who i regard as you know some of the best investors in the world is you've got to be adaptable, you've got to be flexible in your thinking, and it's the people who are inflexible that actually suffer the most. It's a really good point there. I guess let's sort of delve a little bit deeper on this being flexible and also looking at your game plan. So in a time like this where there's going to be a lot of volatility, we should be looking at, okay, how do we sort of change our mindset to be able to go, okay, what can we do to make sure that we can ride this out? Do you have any sort of... um, I guess, strategies that we could sort of share, maybe even use an example of uh, maybe even one of your clients that, um, you know, we've been looking at and how they've actually been able to sort of put together something. And we're obviously not giving any financial advice or or legal advice or anything like that here. It's more sort of just a high level, just understanding how to sort of look at, you know, the bigger perspective on potentially, you know, if you're in a similar situation like this, how, how you could probably potentially look at, you know, strengthening yourself to be in a better position right now, especially during the uh, volatile times. Well, one of the examples that we talked about at our event a couple of weeks ago, which um, really talks to this point of flexible thinking, was um, this idea of if if I had asked you to name the highest grossing actor of all time, who would you have guessed? And people guess people like Tom Cruise or Julia Roberts and Tom mm-hmm. Hanks and people like that. And the the award for that actually goes to an actor who never won an Oscar and hasn't actually made that many Uh, much money per film and that was um, you know our um, good friend Samuel L. Jackson um, who's generated more than 20 billion dollars and you know done even more than that in cameos and voice acting roles and that's because of his capacity to be flexible about what kind of actor he was you know he's he's had a career spanning more than four decades just because he's had stamina and flexibility and and part of you know being a successful investor is is we talk about is partly just turning up like actually not sticking your head in the sand and looking for opportunities regardless of market conditions but I guess the the example of flexible thinking in today's environment is really about saying well 
Let's say, for example, you're an investor that has historically done very, very well with something like commercial property. And you have, um, and, and I've talked about this before, like one killer property in amongst your portfolio that generates the lion's share of the income. And then something happens outside of the control of the property market, you know, particularly to do with, you know, the business world or, or supply chain or world wars or things like that, that causes that tenant to, you know, go bust or just they can't pay the rent or whatever. From a portfolio perspective, that could potentially be viewed as a huge vulnerability for someone. And I know that from from a flexibility point of view, sometimes it's about just, you know, reading the market and saying, well, look, there's, there's, there's more than one thing going on right now. Maybe I need to mitigate that risk. So I think that the idea of flexible thinking is just not being, you know, dogmatic about your way being the right way forever and a day and just being able to kind of take what's available in the market in terms of information and and assume that markets like life they're they're constantly changing um and trends do change and I, I think if you think about how markets change um if you look at the last five decades there have been so many strategies that have been in vogue and then out of vogue like um you know, we talked about venture capital was a huge in vogue asset one decade, and then the next it was out of vogue. And then one minute commodities are, you know, in a glut, and the next they're in a shortage. And then, you know, diversification works until it doesn't. Um, and concentration is an advantage till it's not. So, all those sorts of things. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And I really liked what you said about that particular example is just to be flexible in that sense. And I guess what I'm trying to sort of also tap into and understand is especially in a volatility like this market, there's so much fear from, you know, all the upside that's been happening. People are sort of still on that mindset going, oh, wow, you know, we've not made so much money in the last couple of years, depending on what you purchased or what you bought, whatever. But then, you know, the market could potentially keep going up, which is maybe a short period. But at the same time, they're also uncertain. And then, you know, you hear all these stories about, people being fearful so they went out and just sold at what it is right now and i think even some people have sold it on the market value for like 20 percent, and that's insane because the market doesn't move that fast in in such a short period of time with regards to property it's usually a slower type of market so i guess what i'm trying to understand is why why are these things happening and and, and you know maybe from our perspective as an investor we should probably be trying to be level-headed you know keep our head screwed on because if we act on emotion things obviously can get out of hand and you can just go and basically sell this thing and in say five years time you might look back and regret it. Coming up after the break, Kilkarni dives into why flexible thinking is so critical. And COVID completely ripped the rug out from under them. And now they've obviously they've they've got tenants, they've just got, gone back to traditional um you know, families or whoever, but um, it completely shattered the game plan that they had in mind for retirement. How her style of deal helps her have the upper hand. But where, you know, where I see alternative as having an edge, if you like, in this market is 
predominantly the sorts of deals that I'm interested in. She explained why sometimes it's worth the risk to let your emotions take the lead. And one month after making that comment, COVID hit and he dumped the lot. And those socks stocks have since recovered. But the, you know, there's two ways to look at it. And that's next. I'm Tyne Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. Hey, property investor, is your cash or equity currently earning you 1% to 2% per annum sitting in the bank? What if I said to you that you can do better? To find out more, simply register your interest to become a money partner at propertyinvestory.com. Right now, there are great opportunities in the property market and I'm looking for money partners who want to invest to get a high return with low risk on their money for 6 months. Register your interest by visiting propertyinvestory.com. Kyokani suggested for my situation that I prepare ahead as much as possible which is advice she recommends everybody to take on in case the tides get rough. I think when people become panicked, the first thing they want to do is be as liquid as possible. So the temptation is to sell up everything or to pull money out of investments and just sit on the cash. Um, And there's an element of conservatism in that that's probably bang on. But you just want to be asking the question around your motivations for selling investments if you are doing that. If you feel that it's just because I just want to, you know, you think the market's going to tank and just because I just want to be out or whether it's a recognition that you hold a specific property or an asset that maybe if the market were to kind of go to custard would really hurt you overall. And I, I think that, you know, trying to make good decisions, um, in a time when maybe, you know, there's nothing terrible has happened as yet. Um, it's all speculation about what will happen. But now it's time to just be battening down the hatches and making some good change. And in terms of like uh, a, an example of, of someone, I, I know a couple who bought 15 homes in one suburb just opposite the university um, and pre-COVID, they were absolutely raking in the cash flow. Like they were making, you know, more than two salaries worth of income net after expenses pre-COVID. And COVID completely ripped the rug out from under them. And now they've, obviously they've, they've got tenants, they've just got, gone back to traditional, um, you know, families or whoever. But um, it completely shattered the game plan that they had in mind for retirement. And I know, you know, the other side of that is that, you know, if if they were hanging their hat on that income to support something else in their life or the rest of their portfolio, that's where there's potentially um, problems for investors. And that's where the flexible thinking really matters. Not saying there was, you know, I really like that example in terms of, you know, the, the idea of how that happened. I guess what I'm trying to also say or think about it is, then what is it that we can do to mitigate this kind of risk? Because that's a, a good example because obviously they'll rely very heavily on those students to be able to generate the income. And 
you know, anything can happen. Like, you know, tomorrow the market could just completely plunge and do you go fearful and go, okay, I better sell everything just to cash up. But then you're selling at a very low point in time compared to before. And therefore, you'd be stuck because you, you've kind of lost, you know, your good assets and it's like, you know, your, your golden goose that you've literally sold when it's generating, producing income and you don't want to lose that. And I, I guess that's where, as you said, flexibility and also potentially this is where alternative investments come into play because it leads to help you provide that buffer because say instead of actually having 15 properties in that, that area that's close to uh, the university and so forth, they may have split their assets up and done maybe 20% in alternative investments and then you know some other percentage in something else. And that would help them diversify because if COVID hit once again, at least they don't have to be reliant on those just 15 properties when they're going to actually have alternative investments potentially in that. Is that something that we, we could sort of delve into? Because I think that would sort of give people insight in what we're trying to do right now in terms of our strategy, especially for myself. You know, I've, I split a lot of mine now just learning from you, Selena, that um, it's actually wise to actually not have it all in eggs in one basket because that's what I've done in the past. And uh, yeah, I've learned a huge lesson from that. So, I mean, that's something I would love to, for listeners to also learn from because it's also very valuable because ultimately you don't want to put everything into one basket and spread the risk as, or spread out multiple baskets to ride the buffer out. What I would say to people is that, you know, I, I don't think either of us are saying alternative investments are a silver bullet, but I think that there's a, they have um, a nature which makes the ones, the way that we do it anyway, where you're talking about you know, investments backed by real property, they can have a much higher immunity to volatility. And that's ultimately in times of, of a bear market, that's in incredibly valuable. And so for me, you know, one of the things about traditional, uh, you know, Australian and New Zealand property is that we are banking on a rising market to succeed. When we're, we're apart from this example of this couple who really had quite a lucrative cash flowing strategy. Um, most of us are buying property and we're happy to tolerate either poor or negative cash flow because we want to build wealth by growth. And, you know, to regardless of who you are, there is always some level of speculation in that model. And it, most investors don't actually recognize that, that there is a, an element of speculation. I think it's full speculation because you are praying and hoping you don't know which part of the cycle you're in. Like I'll give you an example. My, my father did exactly that. He bought it at the top of a cycle back in I think 2000, bought a beautiful location property by in Sydney and um, you know he overpaid for it at that point in time because it was just like the current market that we've gone through, prices went bonkers. And then literally when the market sort of tanked or started to plateau out, he couldn't hold on to that property. Like he tried holding it for five years, but after about five years, he had to sell it. And then literally two years after that, which is towards the end of that cycle, it went dramatically. So, I mean, from numbers wise, he, he basically bought for 800K, sold it for 600. And then two years after he had sold it, it went up to 1.5. And I was like, <laughs> ouch. So, that that is a typical thing. And I mean, that was what my father was praying and hoping that it'd go up, but he couldn't hold it for long enough because he wasn't able to fund that. And it was quite a lot of cash flow out of his own business as well. So, yeah, typical example. I think that's a great example. And what I would say is that I think, you know, most investors are really trying, they should be playing the long game. And although, you know, I've said there's a level of speculation, I think over the long term, it's still, you know, an asset class that will rise and, and certainly one that everyone should be doing in order to build their net worth. I think where alternative investments for me kind of have a place 
is once you have a reasonable amount of capital behind you, um, you know, diversifying into investments which deliver, you know, pretty boring, predictable cash flow can often be um, offer a level of comfort during bear markets. Um, so right now, for example, as the market kind of in many uh, strategies starts to slow, um, potentially, you know, could pull back, could pull back in a small way, could pull back in a in a big way. Those investors that are playing the long game are probably less concerned, provided they've got you know adequate cash buffers and they can they can you know ride out any crisis. It's those that maybe who have over leveraged or who are, you know, really redlining their finances in order to be investors that are going to suffer or struggle. Um, but where, you know, where I see alternative as having an edge, if you like, in this market is predominantly the sorts of deals that I'm interested in. There's no ground up construction. There's no hoping the market will rise. They're, they're deals that are already cash flowing today. And my experience from having invested very heavily in alternative during the global financial crisis was what I witnessed in the alternative space is that cash flow just was relatively untouched because if you're investing in an affordable housing kind of section of the market, people have to have somewhere to live. And so, yeah, nothing much happened to the income streams, even though you know, valuations dropped. So I, I just think it's a it's another feather to have in your cap in terms of just protecting against volatility. I like that. That's the thing because ultimately, if you have that consistent regular passive income that's coming in, that gives you cash flow to be able to fund your current investments if you know if it's currently needing support from you. But if those cash flow, sorry, if your investments are currently throwing out enough cash flow that you don't even need to service it out of additional investments, then that actual passive income can actually help you build up more cash to be able to reinvest for new opportunities in the future. And, and that's the beauty of doing that is that you're diversifying, not just locked into, you know, just a portfolio of properties in say Australia, where it's turning maybe like, you know, two or three percent return. And those ones, yes, obviously will have its own um hopefully buffers in place to be able to service it. But you're never going to be able to live off those in passive income unless you pay them down. And and even then it doesn't seem to make sense in my opinion that you'd rely on that passive income from those properties because the return isn't very great um, in Australia particularly. That's why we look at alternative investments to be able to get a bit higher return so that your money is working harder for you at the same time reducing the risks and mitigating any of those um, long-term or, or short-term, I should say, uh, I guess fears or changes in the market, which is what the dip is happening right now. Yeah, I think the um, the push in the market right now is that people want to create um, more robust cash buffers. I think when you're in a really, you know, an upward swing from a trend point of view, it's really easy to kind of say, well, I don't really need to sit on all that much cash. And in fact, the, you know, attitude that a lot of investors have is, oh my God, opportunity cost. I, I could have made, you know, X thousands of dollars over there if I'd had that invested. But when the, when the market starts to wobble, when you're looking down the barrel of some pretty significant world events that will undoubtedly have an impact on the market, then suddenly the the push to keep some money in the bank to keep some money in your back pocket becomes really important. So, you know, I think I'm not really, I'm not at all trying to judge or shame anyone that needs to sell right now to create more liquidity. 
and maybe some of the sort of heavy discounting that you and I were talking about before that we're seeing happening right now in the market, it's not really showing up in the data yet. And I think that's because there's a bit of a lag. But I, I understand why people might want to push towards having greater cash reserves. And I think that's prudent in the current current environment. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, I'm, I'm the same. I am looking at the moment because um, I've got quite a lot of invested in heavily in alternative investments. But obviously, for the next few months or so, I'm just going to sit back and wait and, and watch and see what happens with the market as well. Um, alternatively, obviously, I'd like to probably keep reinvesting my funds as soon as they're all mature because I don't like having cash in there. But I think this is prudent to be able to make sure that there is cash sitting available. I actually wanted to just add one point as well. Uh, previously, we talked about Warren Buffett, and um, I think from memory, there was a particular thing that that you mentioned at um, our intensive uh, seminar not long ago about what happened just before COVID with Warren Buffett. And I'd love for you to be just share with the audience that kind of analogy because I think it was just very important for people to understand that emotion does play a part, but you know you've got to also understand how that works. The real premise of the event that I ran was really to say to people you know, now is the time to be making the difficult decisions around, you know, getting your investment portfolio in order so that when things, if and when things go south, you've made the tough decisions already and you're not trying to make them on the fly. And one of the misconceptions is that we look at people like Warren Buffett and we say, well, he never steps a foot wrong, he's really steadfast he certainly kind of speaks to being very um, stable in his decision making. And certainly if you look over the last five decades of, of his investing, there have been many moments where people have kind of been flummoxed that he's held on to an investment that might otherwise be perceived as a dog and then been proven that he's actually done very well in, in the long term. But I think that... Um, and I actually heard this story from um, Morgan Housel, who basically was describing that even Warren Buffett can be very emotional. You know, it doesn't happen often, but it, it can happen. So the story went something along the lines of um, pre-COVID, um, he was quoted as saying, I will never, ever sell my airline stocks. And one month after making that comment, COVID hit and he dumped the lot. And those socks stocks have since recovered. But the, you know, there's two ways to look at it. Number one, you could argue that, you know, Warren Buffett has just demonstrated flexible thinking and has made a decision given the current environment. And if you look at it from that perspective, you could argue, well, you know, he the writing was on the wall there was a good chance that those airlines were going to maybe go bust. So he dumped the stock. So there's an element of flexible thinking. But the flip side to that is, you know, for him and given everything he says, yes, that was an incredibly emotional decision to have made um, for a guy who says he never sells and rides these things out. So, you know, I think no one could have predicted um, the implications and the ripple effects of COVID. And so you, you just had to make the decisions based on the information that you have. And so I think, you know, one of the concepts we talked about is this hyper-realism and being hyper-realist. And what that means is 
looking at what is actually happening and making good decisions rather than saying, well, you know, nothing much has ever really happened. Like even during GFC, the wheels didn't really come off our economy. But there were reasons for that. And I just think that the point in time and the point in history that we are at right now is a real crossroads. And I think if you are assuming that the government will carry us through this or that, you know, world politics will figure it out and it'll be business as usual, I, th I think that's a little bit naive. I think there's, um, there's definitely things happening now that have happened before, but I think the fact that they're all sort of culminating at a similar point in time just makes it extra scary and, you know, I just think it, it's important to just be extra vigilant. And we talked a lot about, you know, the opinion that's out there right now from an economic point of view and there's there's two really loud uh, sets of voices, one set that are going, this will blow over, it's business as usual, and the other one saying, no, that we're, we're looking down the barrel of something much worse than the Great Depression and the truth is we just don't know. Thank you to Selena Kilkani, our guest on this special episode of Property Investory. And if you love the show and are ready to get serious about investing your money to get a low risk, high return, then SMS me your name and email address on 0499881040 to become a money partner. Right now, there are great opportunities in the property market and I'm looking for money partners who want to invest their money for a short 6 months. To register interest, text me your name and email address on 0499881040. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.